Welcome, Wheatland family and friends. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. I'm Luke LeDuc, Senior Pastor at Wheatland, and today we continue our discussion with Dr. Dan Spanger and our Associate Pastor, Keith Winder, on race, ethnicity, and the church. And in this episode, we pick our way through some questions from Dan about justice. We talk about how love is always the starting point and means by which we pursue justice in the world. We spend a few minutes talking about the orientation and action and movement of love for neighbor. And we end by thinking more specifically about our own congregation here at Wheatland, how and why we're racially homogenous, and what it looks like to begin to consider how we might listen and move toward our neighbors who are different from us. Thanks for coming along. Welcome back, Wheatland community. This is part three in our, our little witty podcast we call Two Pastors and a Professor. Just so you know, I'm being ganged up on a regular basis. Those that have <laughs> spiritual authority against one that has mere temporal authority. Uh, gracious nonetheless. Uh, we're, we're talking through just the issues of race and social issues, social concerns. And I left the last discussion with a question I really wanted to get at, but we we're sort of out of time. So if it's okay, gentlemen, I'd like to return to it. And that is, as we're, as we're talking about issues in society, loving our neighbor, uh, what does it mean to deal with things like race and poverty? Um, it seems like, to me anyway, that the culture nowadays does not have a clear distinction between someone being poor and a system called poverty or a thing called poverty. So let, let's just take that as a jump off point. What, if, if we're going to love our neighbor, so go back to the, you know, the Good Samaritan, we're going to love our neighbor. Is loving our neighbor meaning actually ending poverty? Or is there a distinction between what it takes to end poverty and what it means to love your neighbor that's poor? Should we be doing one of these or both of these? How do we approach that? I guess I'll go for it since Jump in Luke, here, Luke. Luke normally answers yeah. first. And so he's waiting for me quietly and humbly at his microphone. I'm actually scrolling on Instagram. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, are they the same I'd say they're not the same, um, loving the poor and ending poverty. But I think that if we are to love the poor, we should always be working towards ending poverty. Uh, Because if love, and Luke and I talked about this before, not necessarily on here, but if love is both a disposition of God's people and also an action of God's people, then our love towards the poor is, is an attitude and a disposition towards people who are poor. It is, it is seeing ourselves, ourselves with humility um, and seeing our neighbors as image bearers. And so loving the poor is this disposition towards someone else. It's how we feel about them, how we view them in light of who God is and in light of them as humans. And that must lead towards action. Um, 
I don't think you can have love in a sense without some sort of action. And so that would lead towards helping lift them up in ways that we're able to. I don't think in the sense, they're different in the sense that if you can't end poverty, it doesn't mean you haven't loved people mm -hmm. who are poor. So, but, but, to, but to use it as an excuse for just, well, I can't do anything, I can't end poverty, so I'm not gonna work towards this. I think that's just using it as an excuse. I think that we love and our love is a disposition and an action. And we recognize that we may not be able to end poverty broadly or even for an individual person to, to come alongside them and work with them as they uh, move out of poverty. That may not end their, their poverty as an individual, hmm. but that doesn't mean we haven't loved them. Yeah, I think, I think what Keith is getting at is sort of at the bottom of it, or at least one aspect of it that I think is really important is that we're never willing to live, and, and I'm talking to us as a congregation, we're never willing to live with a disembodied love um, such as um, I love you in my heart or I love the poor in my heart or I feel badly about the poor um, in this case. As, but that that love always has um, movement and action and what those are and what the outcomes of that movement and action are, it's hard to pin and... Um, and 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 uh, really uh, forecast what the outcomes of your action and movement of love for someone who is poor might be. Mm. Um, but because you can't realize outcomes that you have in your mind or in your heart, it would never slow you down from the movement and the action of an embodied love. And I think what you're saying, Keith, is we don't have the, the luxury of walking away from a difficult topic, although it seems to me that to join in the broader cultural conversation about it is so toxic right now that it's really hard to think clearly about it. Um, if, if it's, you know, if it's if we know now what injustice is, these structures of inequality and we repair those and, and things don't actually improve, have we missed our have we missed our guess on that? Right. I mean, I think I think a culture is trying to decide what the cause of all human suffering is. We happen to know it's sin sin that infiltrates individual societies, communities, cultures, nations, um, where I think a lot of our social justice warriors have it pinned down to a few things that make sense. It's these institutions and structures and, and pay rates and these sorts of things. And if we get that fixed, all this will go away. And, I, and, and this is what, I, what I'm hearing too, is you, you made the changeover from love to justice. We were talking about whether loving the poor or, or ending in poverty, but what you're saying now justice is love are love and justice the same thing? When, when Christ says, love your neighbor as yourself, is that ultimately a statement of that's what will lead to justice? Is that the just thing to do? Um, is there a distinction between social justice and loving your neighbor? Are those distinct, not necessarily different, but distinct things? No, I, I think it's a matter of asking again, what your intentions are in loving your neighbor. In other words, do you go into this with uh, demanding certain outcomes of the sacrifice that you make in loving your neighbor as yourself. I think there's a sense in which loving your neighbor as yourself 
has to move towards social justice. It has to push the needle towards um, justice. But when, when you start demanding outcomes, it, it, seems, it, it seems like that's a recipe for disappointment at one level. Mm. Mm. If we think about the call to, to do justice and if, and if justice biblically defined is um, a, a rightness, a right treatment of someone, um, so what, or whether that could be when we're justified, we have a right relationship with God, uh, or to do justice is to treat people right. Um, when God brings justice, he's putting all things back together in a sense. He's making all things right. So I think that the work of love is a work that seeks to do that, that love is seeking to make things right um, in whatever different situations. So if, if, if you have a fracture in a relationship, then the loving thing to do is to work to make that relationship right. And so if someone as an individual or, or a group of people, there is a fracture between their, in that individual's relationship to society or that group of people's relationship to society, then the loving thing to do is to work towards making that right or is to work towards the right treatment of that individual or that people group. So I think that love, for me, love is the foundational posture and act as God's people. And if God is love and we are to be a people known by our love, then that is the, the foundational posture that we have towards our community mm. and individuals. But then that, that must lead towards justice and other things, forgiveness and faithfulness and other, other things. So that's helpful because I, I think to help us, help us manage this we're being inundated now. It's the, it's the virtue of the age, social justice. I don't think we've really defined it well as a people, but I think our, our people as Christians get caught up because we want to do what's right um, as godly people, but it's a lot of confusion as to what that is. And I think what you just helped with me anywhere, Keith, is say love in one sense is very simple and clear. Um, it's, it's, it's tangible in one sense. That's supposed to point to something that's very hard and complicated to achieve. So it's not that they're disconnected, but I think what, and, and, and confirm if I'm right, I think what, to me, what's, what's bothered me about our own conversation broadly is that it's actually the inverse. It's actually, it seems like for the culture, social justice is a very easy, simple thing to achieve. We've got to get these outcomes right. We've got to get these procedures fixed and all of that. But justice seems like it's just very, it, it's recognizably a tough thing to finally arrive at. It needs Christ's kingship to finally make happen. But we can't say we're not involved in it. You're saying to love neighbor is how we start that process and how we love neighbor. Loving neighbor is the, is how we live life towards that end. Even though we know that the closer we get to justice, the more difficult it's going to be to achieve. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think it's fair. I think, I think what you're, what you're starting to play at or scratch at there is the tension that we work uh, under and that we live under. And that is, that this tension that we have to be, as Keith has talked about, oriented and living and acting and embodying this love for God and for neighbor. And yet at the same time, 
knowing that all of this, especially as it relates to justice and working for um, rest restoration in these relationships that have been fractured, um, the ultimate final putting together of it all will not be done until all things are made new. And so we're living in this tension of always striving towards love and justice and grace and mercy. And yet at the same time, knowing that it's only the return of our Lord and him establishing a kingdom of peace finally and fully on the earth that will bring about all our desired goals. And, and how do you live in that tension and stay faithful in that tension is I think where the church um, has, to, has to really work hard to be cognizant that just because that's coming is not a, um, a pass on working towards it now. I'm thinking about love and then I'm thinking, well, I, where, where is my motivation to love a particular people? So I know that God commands me to love. The spirit dwells within me and moves me to love. But it's going to be hard for me as an individual to, to love other individuals or, or communities that I'm not regularly engaging with. Uh, it's really hard to love people and then to act and move towards justice with people that you are not in relationship with and you're not engaging with. Um, I was thinking about, as you were talking, Luke, the, with the Good Samaritan, I mean, he, it seems as though in the story, and you try not to read too much into these things, but it seems as though he comes upon someone and is moved to love uh, in that moment and that love a desire to give of himself, a desire to treat someone else as uh, an image bearer of God moves him towards seeking justice, making things right uh, for, for the man who was beaten on the side of the road. But it seemed like what moved him towards love, what opened him up to a life or a movement of love was getting close and, and being, yeah, getting close to someone. So, so let's use that as a as an example because I'm, I've got this, Keith. You've given me a little bit of a clearer view, which I appreciate on how we relate. Because I always struggle as a historian with concepts like justice, because there have been many, many governments who've tried to do that and created some of the worst disasters in human history. Um, so I'm I'm a little I'm a little suspicious of that term sometimes because what what does it mean to get society equal? It depends on who's saying it. You know, whatever government is saying it and. So it's really hard to nail down what it means that we're actually have a system of justice. But if we go to the example of the Good Samaritan, we've got someone who showed love and he, he made things right in one sense, but he didn't end thuggery and thievery at the same time, right? So he, he reached down to this guy and said, I see someone that needs my compassion and I'm not going to ask later whether you use the money right or whether you went on and did the right things with it. I just am going to love you because you're in front of me and here's what I can give you. But he didn't say, wait, I'm going to leave you in the ditch here and I'm going to go see if I can stop theft and the structures that lead to theft, right? So there, there's, there's something going on here where compassion 
And if I take yours right, Keith, and I don't want to misspeak here, but it seems like the compassion and love he had pointed him in a direction against the sort of things like systems that are corrupt, but that he didn't leave the individual behind and go after that. He, he loved this person in front of him. And Jesus is, seems to be saying under his kingship, that's, that's pointed in the right direction. But at the same time, it seems like there, there, there wasn't this call to go out and like, you know, fix Rome. Now we're in a different situation now, but it, even if there's not, even these things aren't categorically different, there's still a distinction between them. Right, it seems. And I, what I get a fearful for is our people who are really trapped by a lot of, a lot of um, guilt or weight in their shoulders to solve these massive problems. When in fact, I, and you can tell me I'm wrong. I'm not sure that's where they're called to do. Maybe they're just called to look out for the person next to them and show compassion. Whether or not they can save the rainforest in Brazil, I don't know. But the neighbor next door, you actually can love. Yeah, I'll, I, I think, uh, and Luke can talk about this. Um, he can talk about Acts 6, I think, as a, as a picture of sort of addressing a system or a structure that, that was harming people or leaving people out. Yeah, it's interesting, Dan, to think about the Good Samaritan because it it's an individual action. It's an individual connection that, that the Samaritan has with the Jewish person on the side of the road, and he does all these individual things to care for him, and there isn't a, a, a notion, in a sense, about the system that allowed that to happen. It's interesting that his action as an individual does push against the systemic hatred of Jews and Samaritans towards one another. Mm. So he doesn't, he doesn't solve the systemic problem, but that individual action is his, his way of saying, yeah, this system is broken and this system is wrong and the system is evil. And the way that we look at one another as enemies and as less than human is is disgusting and so i'm going to do something that works against that i mean that's whether he thought through all that or not on the side of the road but that's what it communicates it communicates i did something individually and this individual thing uh looks at the system and says this this is this is an evil that must must change yeah so his oh go ahead dan no no i was just gonna follow up I was just going to say so that his individual act presses against a system, uh, a, a way, a fractured relationship. His individual act presses against that in um, in a way that is actually tangible. And and I think what does that? And and then this goes back to what we were talking about for, before. What does that do for the general outcome of ending Samaritan and Jew hostilities? It, who's to say? Who's to say, did that spark a little local, I mean, it's a parable, right? But, <laughs> but, but the point is, in that action, it does still press against the whole system, even though there's no outcomes initiated uh, or no outcomes given or, or even thought about or discussed in, in that way. And Jesus yeah. telling the story, Jesus telling the story is Jesus's pushback against the system. It's like, okay, I'm going to tell you a story that is going to push against the system that's in place. Who is my neighbor, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And, and so maybe, so two things. One, the observation for me at the Samaritan is the one that in this situation is most likely the oppressed, if we're going to use that term, makes this even more radically a statement that it is, right? Um, but then the other one, so let's, so this is a lot of good theory, bring this down now. Um, 
bring that same concept down. Because I think, I think you've, you've helped with some good patterns here for maybe how to inform the Christian who's walking out into a society mm-hmm. where there are things going wrong. Many of them systems of intentional injustice, some of them just bad outcomes stemming from broken mm-hmm. systems, however you want to say it. So we've got, you know, we've got uh, friends in our neighborhood, um, people who are poor or discriminated against. So, so yeah, so how, help us now, if we're, if we're going to go out, what, is, what are our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church here doing well if they're loving their neighbor? Yeah, I, I, I think, Dan, something that you said a minute ago is really important to address, and that is the way in which we tend to draw onto our shoulders and into our minds and our hearts the weight of massive, massive problems as individuals that we actually have very little control over. So um, I myself personally am going to have very little to, to say, not to say maybe, but to actually affect change in global situations. And I think that's why it's important for a church as even as we encounter all of these discussions to remember that we are a family that have been brought together and that have covenanted together with one another and that we actually have very uh, local and very actually clear responsibilities to ourselves and our immediate neighbors here that begin to press against that. But I, I think one of the things, so, so that actually goes to help answer that question of what we do as uh, a congregation to begin to take steps that actually do speak to the, 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 the bigger, broader systemic or, 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 or global issues that we feel um, and, and that we see and, and that we know exist, that it has to be done in these tiny little, little uh, lives that we lead with one another. And um, I think that's really important for us to be even to begin to orient ourselves that we have to take we have to reorient our, our thinking from these bigger systemic problems, these national global discussions, and bring them down to what are our responsibilities to one another here. And if you can't begin to be oriented that way, then you're going to continue to carry that weight and that, and that um, despair maybe even. Yeah, I think that yeah, it's, it is overwhelming to try to think, how am I going to solve America's crisis of <laughs> dot, 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 whatever it is. Um, and it's even overwhelming to think, what am I going to do in my local community? But it's much more tangible and it's right in front of you. And you can see this, is my, this might be what it looks like to take the first three steps forward in this. And so I, I think for me, one of the most tangible how do I know as a church member that I am um, loving my neighbor, particularly in the area of racial justice is, and I don't, this can't be the only thing, but I think the first thing must be to broaden your relationships. If, If I'm not in relationship with people who don't look like me, maybe speak the same language as me, and aren't from the same socioeconomic place that I am, 
I don't know how it's possible for me to empathize and truly consider what they may be going through in their life. I don't, I don't think it's possible. Um, I can't put myself in everyone's shoes, particularly if I'm not in relationship with people. So for me, the first thing is just to broaden my circle and put myself into relationships. So whether that means I have to join local clubs um, that are more diverse and whether that's diverse racially, ethnically, socioeconomic, whatever it is that I'm joining local clubs that are more diverse or I'm attending festivals that uh, celebrate you know, ethnic traditions that are not my own, what, whatever it is here locally at Wheatland, whether that's befriending ESL students. So whether it's being part of our ESL program, but going further and befriending them. For me, I, it's very difficult for me to love my neighbor uh, who is, my love my neighbor who is different from me without moving closer to them in more proximity with them. Well, let me ask you a question in light of that, because here's, here's again, going back to Luke's point that what's happening is, is we're taking a lot of, um, it's amazing how many people get upset about national racial issues and they don't know who their neighbors are. Um, the question is loving neighbor, does it require, and I mean this in a, in a certain way, does it require being diverse? Like I don't have any Pakistani neighbors. Do I leave my neighborhood driving the other side of Lancaster to join a club where people get to know Pakistanis because they're Pakistanis who are poorly treated? How much of that do we need to do in order to love our neighbors? And quite frankly, I think a lot of people come from neighborhoods that are not diverse. And is that is that bad? Are they not loving their neighbor because their neighbors are, in fact, not a diverse group of people? Um, how, how do because I, I think this is what happens is we social justice is massive. You've got to get it all right. You're getting nothing right sort of thing. Um, and yet what you're talking about are things that are local and practical. H how much of how much of that do we do? Um, how much? does our neighborhood, I mean, we tend to be a white church. Um, mm -hmm. Is that bad? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think one of the ways to start with that, Dan, and one of the things that um, we have done here at, at Wheatland and then thought a lot about in our own family is a disp, what is your disposition um, towards these ideas? Are you looking for someone to love who is struggling and who is, um, who is hurting, who is um, uh, having a rough time because of their, either their uh, social location or their race or something like that. Are you looking, are you oriented, is your disposition oriented toward loving someone like that? And I know that even in, and this is a little bit anecdotal, um, that when, when we have prayed for something like that, prayed for ways in which to love our neighbors who are experiencing something very different from us, crazy stuff has been dropped on our laps. And I think that's part of, so if, if you think about it in general, um, let's say our life here at Wheatland, um, there's a sense I just said it again. I said I wasn't going to say a sense in which, but there, there is a, there is a way that you can see. I should just say there's a sense in which that um, our neighbors have been dropped in our laps through our ESL program. You know, we prayed for ways in which to meet needs that were um, evident around us, 
in our community. We wanted, uh, Bruce Mawinney years and years ago um, used to talk about if this church uh, on this corner went away, would any of our neighbors miss us? Would, would, would there be any? And, and I think there was always this idea that there was, we want to do um, something that uh, engages our neighbors in such a way that it is a way to love them and for them to see our love and if we were going to miss it. So I think there's a way that you could see even our ESL program here as this great um, initial thing of proximity that has been given to us as a gift because there were people who were praying for something like that. And so I do think that's the very beginning of of what Keith calls proximity is that disposition towards seeking that. Now, whether you drive across, your question was, do you drive across Lancaster to get involved in the Pakistani um, congregation? Part of all that is like a wisdom issue. A, a, what is sustainable in your, in, in your life, in your schedule? Does your schedule have to be rethought to make certain things sustainable? All of us make sacrifices in order to be engaged in things that are, um, important and foundational in our lives, whether it's morning worship on Sundays or something. I'm not equating those two, but I'm just saying, um, how do you shape your life to be oriented towards loving your neighbor and, and being close to them in their pain and in their, and in their struggle? So that's good. Let me and let me pick on that for a minute um, because I, I think what you're saying there, Joe, we need to make decisions. And what I again, some of the things I see is we're being told what's valuable. So you're not you're not involved in your neighbor unless you're loving someone different than yourself. Mm-hmm. Is that a biblical standard? I mean, it's someone different than yourself ought not to not stop you from loving your neighbor. Um, but is that the standard? I, we, we work with a guy, JL Chambers, who helped LBC look through some racial things about us. Are we missing things? Um, mm-hmm. He's an African-American from Compton, really bright guy, really love JL Chambers. And I had an interview with him online and I said, are, are we not doing enough here, JL? And he goes, that's really hard to tell. I don't know why you're asking me. I don't know your situation. Mm-hmm. And I explained it. And he said, Dan, he said, how many people in order to feel that they've done social justice care about the African-Americans in Chicago? But if you live in Iowa, did you actually know the neighbor next to you that's suffering with depression? Are you so interested in solving a race problem 600 miles away that you're not paying attention to a neighbor? And he said this to me, and I I took it as quite a challenge because I live in a suburban neighborhood. There's some Mm -hmm. racial diversity, not a whole lot. He said, put a pin in your house and draw a two mile circle and make it your business to know who's suffering inside that circle. Mm -hmm. That really shocked me because I had not thought that way. I, I want to vote right and I'm worried about politics and who gets elected, mm-hmm. but I'm not mm-hmm. actually worried about who's living right across the road mm-hmm. from me. Mm-hmm. So how yeah. does that, because, but it doesn't mean, you know, the one thing about too, about who's your neighbor is Jesus has said the Samaritan finds someone different from himself, right? So, right, right. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting tension, I think. Um, I do think, I, I love that advice uh, from your friend um, about, and, and that's really, I think that goes back to what we were saying minutes ago or moments ago about um, you want to solve a massive problem like uh, gang culture or whatever it is in Chicago. 
but you don't want to <laughs> see see the person next to you um, hmm. in, in your own neighborhood. Sure, um, but I do think that I think what Keith and I are trying to say is that there are neighbors. Uh, there's a there is one way that we could um, not know our neighbors because like I'm, I imagine you could draw a two mile cir circle around Wheatland Presbyterian Church and you would have all sorts and stripes and types within that too. And that may not be the case everywhere, yeah, but for, right. for here, um, it would certainly be the case that within two miles, um, it is a very, very diverse and, and, and um, variegated landscape. For our church, particularly as a community, the first thing for us to do is just ask questions and maybe for someone else outside of us to come and help us wrestle with questions. The sort of questions, Dan, that you were talking about, you're asking someone else is it, the que questions of if you, yeah, if you drop a dot on Wheatland Presbyterian Church and take a mile radius and draw a circle, it's a pretty diverse place. Um, but Wheatland Presbyterian Church is not a diverse place, ethnically, racially. And so then we have to ask questions of ourselves is, well, we didn't intentionally do that. Of course not. We, we, we don't have policies. We have not intentionally um, said things that we know, oh, this will keep particular people groups out of our congregation. Um, but I think we have to ask questions of others who can help us see are there things that we are doing, uh, the way that we're interacting with others that make it difficult for other people to walk into our door and feel like they are part of this family? And so I think we have to ask those sorts of questions, particularly when our church's radius a mile in a circle around us is, is very diverse and, and we're not. I think it's a different question if you're in Boise, Idaho. It's, it's just a different, it's a different expectation. But, but for here where we're placed, I think it requires us to, to, ask, to ask questions and have um, brothers and sisters and other people outside of our congregation to come in and say, you know, this, this is how I've experienced, this is how I experience your, your welcome and your hospitality. Um, yeah, we have to be open to hearing that sort of critique and challenge. So I'm going to, in light of that, I'm going to ask a very unfair question. But then um, Keith sense, gets to answer. How was that? <laughs> so then Keith gets it. Yeah, that's not Keith. Um, because I, I think I felt this at Wheatland, um, and I've heard this say, you know, Sunday is the most segregated hour. Um, again, if I look at the outcome and I see homogeneity, I don't see diversity, then injustice is the cause. I'm not saying that is or isn't the case, but, but ask it bluntly, is the fact that Wheatland is a largely homogenous congregation a failure of justice? Well, it could be a lot of things. Um, is it a failure of justice? Uh, well, like everything in the world, it's probably not as simple as saying yes or no. I think there are, there are factors in Reformed Presbyterianism that influences the reality that Wheatland is a, a homogenous congregation, homogenous racially and ethnically, maybe not homogenous in every way, right. um, but it's not politically homogenous. It's not homogenous in other ways. So I think that um, Reformed Presbyterianism in America has uh, struggled with this. Conservative Presbyterianism in America has struggled with this. We come out, our denomination comes out of 
uh, out of conservative Presbyterianism in the South, and it has uh, a difficult history uh, racially and ethnically. And so that influences the makeup of our congregation, whether our congregation has, like I said, done specific things or not. The injustice of the past and the, the failures of congregations like ours in the past have influenced uh, the makeup of our current congregation. And so is that a lack of justice from our particular congregation, Wheatland? I don't, I don't think speaking to that particular thing it is, but it's, a, it's not good if, if we don't recognize that there are factors that have led to our congregation looking the way that it does, then I think that's a failure and could lead to an injustice if we're completely unwilling to do anything about it or to be self-reflective or do a cultural audit on our church. Or to be in conversation with brothers and sisters in our own denomination who um, can help us uh, think through why it is we look the way we do um, within just a few blocks of, let's say, um, a very heavily Hispanic um, population. So, so, you know, one of the things I would see is that, yeah, and I understand that these forces are there. It also seems that if you're choosing a reformed Presbyterian worship style, some <laughs> ethnicities are not going to find that attractive. Yeah, yeah, there's certainly... That, now, now, but if, but if, but if what we're saying is that we're not diverse because there are these racial injustices in our history, are we then making a mistake by not changing a worship style to be more welcoming to people who would not like this typical white sit on your hands? I mean, it, it appeals to our people, granted. Mm -hmm. And so maybe, but is that a problem or is that, are these other, other reasons and causes behind it that are, that are always going to persist? And we just, because you've said things, I think are really helpful, like posture and, <clears throat> awareness and conversation, but are we doing an injustice if we don't change our worship style to be more welcoming to people who would normally not want to be in a Presbyterian church? The first step for us is to, like Luke said, have somebody talk with us, brothers and sisters in our denomination who are part of multi-ethnic congregations and who make that a commitment to theirs and even are in communities that are a similar makeup like ours, but our multi-ethnic congregations, to have them talk with us and help us see if there are blind spots in the way that we worship or the way that we engage with our neighbors and, and, and our hospitality. If there are blind spots that we don't see because this is what we do and it seems to be working okay. And so I'm comfortable with this and let's keep moving forward. The first thing for us to do is to have someone talk with us and get to know us so that, and for us to humbly approach them and allow them to speak into the culture of our congregation. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think the other thing to remember is that Presbyterianism is a form of church government. And, and that is, um, that can be worn by very different cultures and in very different ways. Uh, if you were to go to Brazil, there's actually a very, um, anyway, there, there are other cultures that are culturally um, wearing 
Presbyterianism, elder-led government, Westminster Confession of Faith sort of stuff. So I think, I think the answer to your question, Dan, is probably yes, there are, there are things about the way in which we are, are um, built here that does uh, very clearly talk about our preferences. And, and so when we start talking about preferences, like if you happen to be in love with the Anglican choral tradition and plain chant or something, that's, that's, that's a preference that you are going to love that is not gonna find its preference in every culture across the board, not even, our, not even American culture maybe. Um, so, I, I, so then I think it's going from a discussion from um, like the things that we're absolutely committed to as Presbyterian government, uh, elder-led congregation, and, and Westminster Con Confession of Faith to sort of dissect what are the preferences that we have uh, from our own social location and I think social location is bigger than just race. It's also um, socioeconomic stuff. So how do we begin to put on the table, okay, here are, these are the things that we absolutely would never um, give up or give away. These are the things, the core commitments of gospel, um, you know, all our creeds, our confessions, that sort of thing. And then here is the way we wear those or, or here, are, here are a list of preferences that we have, and, and here's how we've done it in the past. Do some of these preferences need to be thought through? Do we have things that we haven't even considered as a preference, but we've considered them as confessional or, or, or in this other category? So yeah, those are helpful things that I, I think we have to, to hear and, and talk about. Yeah, and that's good. I, and this is all very helpful because I think we've all wrestled with it in these different ways. And we've heard things and start to feel like, you know, we, we don't know how to evaluate whether our church is on the right track or not on the right track. And where is it on the wrong track? Um, and I, my guess is we're, we're, we're somewhat, and I've told this to you, Luke, and probably Keith, I, it seems to me that our congregation is a heterogeneous, partly because we've got a rural crowd and an urban crowd, suburban, rural mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're going to, they're going to see these values very differently. And some people, my guess is, would see what we call preference as crucial to the health <laughs> of the church, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's a loaded discussion when you right. start talking about what is right. preference and what is not. Right. That's what yeah. I love. But the very fact that you're making distinction is helpful. And then, and yeah. then when it comes down, where's the, is there liberty to say, yeah, we're going to disagree on that. So I'm, I'm going to call, right. I don't want to be called a, I don't love my neighbor because I have a preference for something that sounds very white. I, I mm -hmm. like you know, I, I, I know clapping is important and that's fine, but I'm contemplative in worship. And if it gets too rowdy, I lose focus. So I kind of like that is, mm -hmm. you know, but uh, that's just a preference. Yes, but it's also helpful. So at what point is it just right. something we can let go of, right? right. It's going to be some more things like that. So, right, right, right. And, I, and I, I'm glad we're talking this way. So, so, cause I think it helps people navigate. Okay. So you know, there's reasons why we, we may not look that way, but to your point, Keith, and I think this is something that struck me in this conversation and something I've felt from other people is that the posture of the Christian is always repentance. And if we start by saying, eh, this is just who I am without saying, wait a minute, I always have to be willing to listen. I may conclude, okay, that's not essential or that change isn't worth making or something, but I can't not listen or I can't just say, I'm not even willing to have the conversation. So if I go back to your, your idea here, Keith, which I find very helpful is that we start with love 
and we do that and we point ourselves towards something like justice, does love begin with just listening and being made aware, even if it may not make a change, it starts with listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about any change you want to make in your life, it's really difficult to do it on your own. Yeah. I mean, for lasting change to happen, because we are, we're just not very good at recognizing the places that need to change in our lives. And then even if we do recognize it, we're not very good at sort of seeing it. Uh, we're not, we don't see it very well. So then if you're in a marriage relationship, you have a partner who hopefully you've opened yourself up to and, and said, hey, like point things out to me, like please do them lovingly and gently, but point things out to me because that's, that's the only way that I grow. And we are trusting because it's promised that as we read scripture and we're praying and we're worshiping and we're taking the sacraments that the spirit is doing that work in us. But the other thing that we all need is these relationships where Luke and you are lovingly confronting me with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll do that and, off, off of the recording. <laughs> it won't be that. Yeah, if you could do that later, that'd be better. Yeah. Um, and so, so, of course, our expectation should be that if we want someone to lovingly confront our congregation with the good news of Jesus as it relates to, to, to this broad vision of Revelation 7, where all of God's people are together worshiping from every nation, then we need someone to speak into our life that way. And we need to be willing to listen humbly. Yeah. So gentlemen, as we, as we end this uh, session for the time being, could each of you tell our congregation in some way how difficult this is, mm-hmm. but, but how it's good work? Because I, I, yeah. if I listen to my culture, um, we either got one people saying it, it's too confusing. I'm not going to get involved in it. It's just all yeah. one big conspiracy on the left and the other group saying you have to do this at all times. And if you don't, you're not on the right bandwagon. Tell, tell us why this is difficult and why it's good work yeah. to do. I, I, I want to start by saying how encouraged I am by the discussion that we're having, because I, I've, I've thought about this recently in a couple of other areas, but the fact that we are continuing to pursue this discussion means that we are actually trying to live into our own mission statement as a church. Wheeland exists to glorify God by equipping the community of believers to lovingly confront our generation with the gospel of Christ. And I I think that is uh, why I'm so encouraged is that if we are going to lean into our own mission statement. If we're going to confront our generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that doesn't just mean our culture out there, their generation, but our own congregation. If we're going to confront our own, our own selves and our culture more broadly, our, our community, our neighbors, um, we have to be having clarity and, and purpose and articulation around these particular areas that are so uh, at the, uh, on the surface of, of cultural conversation mm-hmm. right now. And, and that doesn't mean that we only have conversations here that are culturally relevant. That's not the point. But the point is because our neighbors and our friends and even our own, we ourselves are wrestling with these things, 
we have to wrestle with them faithfully and we have to um, together uh, with scripture and with brothers and sisters um, find, be confronted together with the gospel of Jesus. And I, I think that's why it's so important for us to have these conversations as uncomfortable as they may be, uh, as, as few answers as this podcast ever offers anybody who listens to it. <laughs> we have to continue to have these conversations as we work toward um, not only uh, answering uh, the, these, these age-old questions, but also being able to bring the gospel to bear to the very pertinent questions of our own, own time. Yeah, I, this is hard work, but it's good and necessary work, you said, because it's the work that God is doing. And so if God is bringing redemption and restoration and reconciliation to his world and that we we have this hope because we know it's true that in the end that that is what happens that there is reconciliation and restoration and god's people are together worshiping him then that means it's good work but it also means it's difficult because as you can tell in the scriptures this was not easy for jesus to do that involves sacrifice and giving of your entire life for the world and so that's our role, to give our lives for one another, the world around us, to give our lives for those that we come into contact with, for our community, for our families, and for our church. And so it's good because it's what God's doing, and it's difficult because it requires us to give our life for the other. Yeah, that's good. And, I, and I, I would just add to what maybe is underlying what you all been doing as pastors is that there's, just, there's not going to be full agreement on how all of this looks and I think what's rare to me about the church is since we're all focused on Christ, we're allowed to disagree on everything else. And I think sometimes if, if, if these justice issues become the gospel itself, then we find we can't disagree on that. It's either got to be, this is exactly how this has to look. And if you're not on my side of this, you're wrong. I don't know how that flies when Christ is the ultimate king, because he hasn't given us an exact pattern for how this all works out. But I, I go back to, I think what you said, Keith, and, and you said this, Luke, too, this is there's a direction in which this is going. Everything we're doing is is trying is heading and directed towards Christ's kingship ultimately, and we can all be on that road, even if my friend in the church is a little left of me or my other friend's a little right of me on some of these issues or how it's supposed to look. Finally, that disagreement is is a wholesome disagreement if mm -hmm. it's if it's a shared loyalty to Christ, right? Yeah. And I I just yeah. think I think it's going to be hard to navigate that in in future months and years. Yeah, yeah. I agree, and. I think one of the things that this past year has taught us is that there are there are more disagreements perhaps than <laughs> we had ever supposed <laughs> and and one of the great gifts I think coming out of covid tide as Alan Jacobs at Baylor calls it <laughs> um, and one of the great gifts is that we are having as a body. And I think I said this at the beginning, this is what's funny, Dan, is at the very beginning of this year or uh, of, of, of this whole COVID pandemic um, situation, I said, well, here we are, you know, for a long time, Wheatland's enjoyed uh, a, a really easy and, and fun and friendly unity. And now we have to um, start seeking and enjoying a costly unity, mm. which is actually biblical unity, like biblical unity in, in whether the work that Jesus accomplished in uniting us to himself was not an easy unity. And if we are his body, um, 
we are, uh, it, it is a costly unity as well. And I think that's one of the things that this pandemic has uh, sort of brought, at least to me in new ways and awareness in new ways that what might have been easy was actually maybe not unity. It might've mm-hmm. been coincidence. It might've been circumstance, but unity is always costly. And I, I stand here, or actually I sit here a year later and uh, think about my words at the beginning of this pandemic that now it's time for a costly unity. I didn't, I don't think I realized <laughs> what that, mm-hmm. what that would feel like mm-hmm. to pay it. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's, it's costly, man. Yeah. But it, I think like you said, it's good work because it's what God's doing. Yeah. I think oh, you're right. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and this is just one of those areas, right? There's other things that we're going to struggle around, but this one is pulling our culture apart and woe be to us if it pulls the church apart, which I think yes. is what we're all seeing. I mean, we're seeing right. it yeah. all over. And I'm, yeah, no, that that's a whole other podcast, right? <laughs> well, maybe that'll be the next one. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, thank you. As we wrestle through this, I really appreciate your willingness because these are hard topics and you're putting yourselves, I mean, you're pastors. So that's in one sense a responsibility, but by putting it out like this, you're, you're willing to ask and answer hard questions. And I would dare say that whatever we wrestle with here, you do probably in six months, eight months, a year ago, Ooh, you know what? I probably could have shaved it this way or that way. Because again, no one's saying this is, we discover the truth. It's just, it's the church wrestling through what it's called to wrestle through, which I think Keith is where you were telling us to go. This is a, this is good work and we need to be involved in it. So, so thank you gentlemen again for, for having courage to, uh, to engage it. And thank you, Dan, for the good questions and uh, all of the work and thought that you put into getting us together each week. So thanks. <laughs> Happy to do it. Friends, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. You can learn more about our church and discover additional resources on our website, wheatlandpca.org.